Hey everyone. By way of explanation here, when I started the live episode, I got about 10 or 15 minutes into it before I realized that the listening audience at the time could not hear any of the music in the background, nor could they hear any of the sound that I was playing at the time. So I ended up taking some time to figure out exactly what went wrong. And once I did that, I started the show over, but I did not force them to again, listen to the story I told. And that story was that I discovered just before the live episode began that the man I believed to be Frank Epps Jr. was not in fact Frank Epps Jr. He was just Frank Epps. He was named after his father, who was also Frank Epps, but the judge, Frank Epps, had no middle name, whereas the Frank Epps we know today as the attorney in Greenville, South Carolina, in fact does have a middle name. The reason that the judge, Frank Epps, ended up just being Frank Epps was because he had a brother who died in 1921 of the flu. That was the original Frank Epps, and that is how the judge became Frank Epps. I understand that is a lot of Frank Epps to hear and a lot of Frank Epps to talk about, but that's the story that the folks heard during the live show before I actually got started and did it for real. So now that you know that, we'll pick it up right here. So here's the nature of live broadcasting in general. You think you got it right. You think you got it right most of the time. In fact, uh, after we did the first episode of Murder, Etc. Live, I... I guess I got cocky, uh, but I wasn't so cocky as not to make notes because I'll tell you just last week uh, when I did the first episode, what I did was I sat down and it took me about eight hours to find the exact software and the exact alignment of all the software and how to route everything to get everything from eight different programs out to you and your ears. And uh, once I got that done, I thought I've got this figured out. And at the end of the last episode, which frankly I thought went pretty well, uh, what ended up happening was I'm like, I'm going to be smart this time and I'm going to make some notes. And I made some notes on exactly how everything was routed. And after I finished with those notes, I, I closed the notebook and then realized that I have four notebooks that look exactly the same. Uh, one of them is uh, what we're essentially calling our quarantine journal here with the family, which we keep every night to talk about uh, what's going on with ourselves. Uh, I have one that uh, I keep songs in. I have one that's a bullet journal, which is basically a to-do to list. And one's a just a work notes journal. They all look the same. So about 30 minutes before we went on the night, I just wanted to make sure I had everything right according to my notes. And I did. The one thing I didn't note is that there's a little button on one of the programs that says mute. And apparently that's what was happening last time. So uh, I'm not going to force everybody that was listening uh, at the 830 hour when we started uh, to go through everything again that I started talking about. But the, the upshot of everything when we started last time was that I discovered today that Frank Epps Jr.'s name is not actually Frank Epps Jr. Uh, he's not a junior. His father is Frank Epps, his, and he is, in fact, just Frank Epps as well, although his father had no middle name, and Frank Epps has a middle name. So that happened because his grandfather's brother was Frank Epps, but died of the flu uh, in 2000, I'm sorry, 1921. And after his brother died, his distraught parents took to calling the eventual judge, Frank Epps. And that's how it ended up happening. So that was how I started the show the very first time we did this. And I'm going to try to do it one more time. And you should hear a very familiar sound if this works the way it's supposed to. I'm Brad Willis, and I hope this is Murder, Etc. Live.
And since I see no one in the comments telling me they're not hearing the bong, I'm going to assume that we're doing all right. So anyway, uh, as I said, it turns out the guy that I've known for 20 years is in fact just Frank Epps, and his father was Judge Frank Epps. But Frank Epps Jr. is no junior. He's just little Frank uh, or Frank Epps. Um, as I was saying before, we had a long conversation that we uh, had to have via phone because you know, we're both in quarantine. And because we're both in quarantine, I don't really go anywhere, but Frank Epps has to go places because he's a defense attorney. He's in a, his work is essential to what goes on. And so he spent a lot of time out and I wanted to share with you just the first part of our conversation before we move on with the rest of it to tell you basically how Frank's spending his time. Oh my, I spent a good bit of time the first couple of weeks trying to um, make sure anybody that the courts would be inclined to let out of jail, we got out of jail. There's nobody with a $10,000 bond or a home incarceration violation because they were out too late one night to stay in jail with this coming. You know, jails don't want them. They don't want to be exposed medically and and they don't need to be there because it's, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, as terrifying as it is for all of us in our own homes, imagine how terrifying it is when everything in your life is controlled by others and you know other people are coming in and out without you knowing who they are or what they're doing and you have no way of controlling your access to medical care. I mean, it's just terrifying. You know, that reminds me, sort of reminds me now, you have a kind of compassion for people, but uh, you know, a lot of people maybe just don't have that same sort of experience. Well, it's it's kind of, interesting when you when you're around this a lot of times you realize well my favorite quote about it is about molly ivins talking about texas legislators she said texas legislators are no more corrupt than any other legislators they just have a broader sense of extenuating circumstances and i really think the people i deal with the number of conversations that i've had with my clients where it was very clear to me that in their minds, their only option was the thing that got them in trouble because of the series of choices they had made. You realize there's a lot more criminals of convenience than there are criminals of intent. I'm using intent in a different way than the intent as defined by the law. I'm People make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody knows the mistakes they've made. Most of us don't get arrested for the mistakes we made, but that's a whole line of mistake that a lot of people go down. And I get a lot more joy out of seeing the people that redeem themselves and make something of their lives or do good things, even as they continue down the road of crime than I do in, you know, chucking people in jail for decades at a time. You heard Frank use the word joy there. Uh, it's a word that comes up quite a bit when you talk to him because by and large, he feels his father was just this this joyful, happy man. And it uh, it reflects on who Frank Epps is today as a practicing attorney. And I, you know, I need to tell you, I, I've known a lot of men in their lives who love their fathers almost like they were benevolent kings. Uh, I happen to be one of those people. I, I, before my father passed, I, uh, I, I considered him uh, you know, one of the kings of the world and a benevolent one at that. Frank Epps sits at the top of the people who loves his father that way, um, as did a great many people in Greenville, actually. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons he loved his father as much is because he could look around and see so many different people loving him in, in the same way. And we talked about that for quite a while. So um, here's that. 
your dad was a big part of the story. And so people want me to write a book. I'm going to tell you a story because my mama told it and she didn't mind telling it, but my mom met my dad at a jury box to courthouse. He was there in court and she was observing court in a jury box and he asked her out. When you realize I got married on the courthouse steps, it really brings it all around. But their first date was a Greenville bar dinner dance at a steakhouse over on Whitehead Boulevard. And my father loved to dance like nobody I've ever known. He loved to dance. And he was real big on, you know, cheek to cheek kind of dancing or shagging. He did both very well. But when he was dancing arm in arm, he liked to walk through the whole daggum crowd, which was him. I, it's hard to explain. on his face when he was doing it was palpable. And the women that liked dancing with him loved dancing with him. I bet I've had 200 tell me how much they loved dancing with my daddy since he passed away. But anyway, they went to this dinner dance. And my mama said, I got there. We were there five minutes. And your daddy's walking through the room like he's a king. Now, remember, he wasn't a judge then. He's just a lawyer. He's a legislature. But he, and he's walking through the room like he's a king. And I decided he was the most arrogant man on earth. And I was never going to have another date with him. And I said, well, that don't make no sense. And she said, well, by the end of dinner, I realized that for no reason I could understand, everybody in the room actually treated him like he was the king. And they really all loved him for it. So I went out with him again. My parents' courtship is a 10-hour story. But anyway... That was my father. My father was just a joyous person that really was good at being a judge because he really looked at people, saw the good in them, saw the bad in them, tried to come up with something he thought was right, and really didn't study on it after the fact all that much. Now, if somebody messed up, he dropped the hammer of Thor on them. And he would get annoyed if he gave somebody a break and they did something stupid. But he was not a person, you know, everybody now was with domestic violence cases, for example, they're all worried that somebody is going to hurt somebody after they've been charged with domestic violence and they'll somehow be responsible. My father was very conscious of the fact that you do the best you can and you cannot predict human behavior. So that was part and parcel of it. Now, one interesting thing that I'll tell you about him as well, because my sister remembered this better than me. One of my sisters is a year younger than me, and she started listening to the podcast and she called me and said, oh, I remember how upset daddy was. And, and I remembered his previous death penalty case when I was six, but I didn't really have a memory of his personality during the Wakefield case. I remembered the case, but not. But my sister said he was in a real grumpy mood the whole time, would fit with my thought process of what he thought. He did not like being the judge that could sentence somebody to die. And I may have told you, I do remember my father said, I saw and heard him say it a hundred times, I sentenced two people to die, and I'm glad neither one did. And interestingly enough, I was going through some of his things a week or so ago, and I actually found the newspaper articles about the other guy that he sentenced to die, which I had completely forgotten about. I'd never seen the newspapers, but they were in a box of my father's things among 50 boxes of my father's things that I'm still trying to go through. And and Frank isn't joking about that. Uh, Frank has a lot of boxes. Uh, I know this because Frank had one particular box that I was looking for at one point uh, when before we started the podcast, and he took me up into a room where he keeps his boxes, and there were more boxes than I've, I've seen. Uh, I'm not sure Amazon has that many boxes. Uh, so uh, Frank has a lot of boxes to go through. Uh, you know, you can hear in his voice how much 
Frank loved his father and, or still loves his father. And I don't know how many people who are listening uh, or will listen have ever tried to publicly tell the story of such a revered guy. But, you know, when you're, when you're both interviewing that man's son and then broadcasting to a group of people who are actively trying to determine, is this judge a good guy or is he a bad guy? Um, that becomes very difficult, especially once the podcast starts and you're getting so much information that floods in and people are going up to the man's son and they're saying, you know, are you, are you hearing what, you know, they're saying about your father? And this was something that started happening to Frank Epps pretty quickly. What was it like for you? Like, I know that, you know, you got really busy because you had a very busy 2019 and you had to catch up on the podcast toward the end of it. But I'm curious, just as you heard the stories that other people were telling and then heard the story in the podcast, what was it like to put those stories together with what you heard uh, you know, about him and what you knew about him when you were growing up? Well, it was, it's always just kind of interesting. You know, my father traveled growing up the whole time. He was a traveling judge and he traveled my whole childhood. He'd be gone Monday to Friday for basically chunks of a third of the year each time. And he'd be home in the summers. And I tell people one of the great things about being me is a lot of times people talk about him so much that it's literally like he's holding court in another circuit. He he comes up in conversation a half a dozen times a day. The podcast kind of intensified it and Actually, I had somebody from Charleston, I won't tell you who, that's pretty prominent, came up to me and started talking about the podcast. And, and I looked at him and I said, well, you know what? That, why everybody in Charleston likes that podcast? Well, he said, why? And I said, because it reinforces why they always secretly thought they didn't want to live in Greenville. That's fantastic. But, but you know, you, you talk to people, and I've never been one to, most people that talk to you love my father. I had a, I had a guy come up to me at a gas station. And it wasn't about the podcast, but it was since you've started. I'm sitting there pumping gas at the Sphinx over at Park Place, and he comes up. He says, hey, I said, yeah. He said, you know me? I said, no. He said, your daddy gave me 15 years. And I'm like, really? He said, yeah, and I had to do it. I'm like, and so it was obviously after 2096 or whenever they did that truth and sentence. And so he did 85% of it. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry. And he said, he shouldn't have given me 15 years. And I said, well. I'm sorry. He said, I just wanted you to know I'm still mad about it. I said, well, that's fine. And, and then he turned around and walked off. He was nice, decent enough guy. It was just, <laughs> it was interesting. I had a couple of people when different people said different things about the case on the podcast. I had a couple of people call and say, they're acting like your daddy was in on something. And I said, well, they're entitled to believe what they want to believe. I, you know, I don't, think daddy was in on anything i honestly the one thing i am 100 certain of 100 certain of is my father did not know anything more about the death of detective looper and his father than anybody else because lord have mercy my daddy would tell me about anything and i we he and i talked about it a lot and i speculated about it a lot and I just, I'm 100% certain that he didn't know anything about it. And I'm, I'm likewise certain that he had no conversations with the prosecution or the defense more than he normally would about, about that case during the trial. 
You know, that's what was interesting to me over the course of this. And you know that I was doing as much of the research as I could. And, you know, I, if I if something came up and I needed to confirm it with you or confirm it with anybody else, I would. But in this particular you know case, people would come to me and it's like you said, you know, you know, it sounds like the judge was in on it or the judge was crooked or the judge was crooked. And I said, you bring me evidence the judge was crooked. We'll talk about it. But no one ever could. And I feel like that was sort of part of your dad's mystique over the years. I know that we've talked about that, but talk to me a little bit more just about what kind of reputation he had and how he earned it. My dad, to me, always told the truth and always did the right thing and what was best. He, um, I don't know. I, I saw him one time, this I remember because I saw it. It's still one of the damnedest things I ever saw. A guy comes to our house with a bushel of peaches. I can't tell you who the guy is. I don't remember. He came to the house with a bushel of peaches, brought the peaches to the house. I'm like, Daddy, why did you bring, he bring you those peaches? And he said, I don't know. He's got court tomorrow, I think. So we go to court the next day, and I was there, and, and the dude comes out, and Daddy says, now, you know you brought me a bushel of peaches last night? And he said, yes, sir. And you know that I had to tell the prosecutor, yes, sir. And you know that based on that, I either got to send it to a different judge or go ahead and give you 10 years. Now, 10 years when this happened, it wasn't 10 years. I, I don't know what it was. I don't know what parole eligible or max outs were then, but this was 60s or early 70s. And he looked at me and said, Judge, I'd rather get the maximum from you and be done with it than I would mess with it anymore. And Daddy gave him the 10 years, and off he went. That was one of the funniest things I ever saw. I still can't, I still can't get over it. Of course, <laughs> I also know, based on the other options for judges at that time, He'd have probably got the same thing with some of the others. I don't know that for a fact because I don't remember any of the facts of the case. I just remember that always stuck with me as an odd thing, but an odd thing indeed. I mean, it was that was a story that I hadn't heard before, but I don't think it was a story that was necessarily uncommon uh, for Frank Epps or Judge Frank Epps. Um, you know, like I said, I've not heard that story before, but you know, unlike today, when everybody has a camera in their pocket, literally all the time, and they have a social media account that's just as close as the camera is. Back then, a guy like Judge Epps didn't worry so much about being seen with the wrong guy, a lot like people might today, because, you know, you have a judge or you have a politician who gets seen with the wrong guy today, it can wreck their career. But for somebody like Judge Epps, that just wasn't the case. And it sort of added to his mystique. Um, you know, back then, because he didn't feel so worried about being seen that way, um, there are stories that are still told today. In fact, at one point, when I was interviewing people for the podcast, I spoke to a man named Danny Jones. And Danny uh, was a narc with the Greenville County Sheriff's Office. Uh, he once won the Frank Looper Award. He considered, uh, you know, Frank Looper to be his, his role model. And so one day, Danny Jones and I are sitting out at this pavilion at this park where I would you know, interview people from time to time. And he never would speak the name of the judge he was telling this story about. But at the same time, um, it became a really interesting story really quickly. And when he told that story, it began with a drug dealer. Big time cocaine dealer. Now you're getting into stuff. That we busted him. Uh, he goes before the judge. He gets like seven years probation. He gets busted six months later with another bunch of cocaine and a machine gun. He gets a bunch of probation again. They had a big pig picking up in the mountains. I wish I still had those photographs. We went up there 
to, to get pictures of these guys because supposedly every outlaw in the country was going to be there. <laughs> well, we get up there, we got a horseshoe pit set up out there. JR's at one end, that judge is at the other, pitching horseshoes. That whole bunch over there was just as bad as that bunch in Juan. And I'm sure they all knew each other, you know, because they were into cars and JR run a body shop and they fooled with cars and stuff all the time. Luke Cannon and them always fooled with cars and stuff. So I'm sure they knew each other really well. And it's just that kind of story that, frankly, became one of the most difficult things about producing murder, et cetera. Uh, there were at least four people mentioned in the podcast who served in some sort of law enforcement capacity. And every once in a while, someone would call me up and say, you know, you know, that person was dirty as sin, right? And that happened a lot. And, and I'll tell you, I spent weeks and weeks, sometimes months, trying to find the dirt or the sin that these people were talking about. And if I could do it, well, then I put it on the air. And if I couldn't do it, well, there was nothing I could do about it. And then I would try to find anyone who could say anything on the record about what, you know, these allegations were. And I'd ask the tipsters for, you know, any proof, any documents, any recordings, just anything that could help me prove what they tell me they knew. And either they couldn't or they wouldn't deliver at the time. And so I'd explain to these folks as a journalist, I can only go with what I can prove or what someone else is willing to say on the record and stake their reputation on it. So, you know, without any of that, I'm pretty hamstrung in what I do. So now double back to this story here uh, about the judge playing horseshoes with a guy he just let out on probation. Uh, by now, you might guess that, you know, it's possible that that judge was Frank Epps. And the only reason I can say that, with, you know, feeling anyway uh, confident about it is because when I started talking to Frank Epps um, of today, this is what he had to say about it. I do remember the horseshoe, the horseshoe thing, because I was there. All right. Then. Um, <laughs> Tell us that story. Then. Well, that was that was at a place called the Ponderosa. Do you know what Ponderosa is? Yeah, I mean that was that was Lynn's place, as far as I remember. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it was Lynn's place or not. It was a chicken. It was a chicken fighting place in northern Greenville County. Okay, it might have been a different Ponderosa because I know that Lynn had a place called the Ponderosa, but it was out off like the Saluda River down uh, um, near the Anderson County line. Up on 25, there was a place where right before a bridge, you went down to the side of the bridge and under it and up a road, and you got to a dirt road that has more gullies in it, had more gullies in it than I've ever seen on a road. And if you went in the back, there was a clear-cut place with what looked like a barn. And if you went in the barn, there was a wire frame place where they fought chickens and they had they used to have a moonshiners reunion up there and they had it up there on a pretty regular basis in the 70s and early 80s once a year it's just a big barbecue and i went up there one time with a guy that daddy put on pro well i got up there with daddy and there was a guy up there that he had put on probation for moonshine during the week that i was up there and the guy was wearing the same shirt he wore to court. <laughs> I remembered it. And it was, I think it was about the last guy I ever saw go to court for moonshine. And it was probably in 1981, but I can't swear to that. But we went up there two or three times, and it would be a bunch of old cops and a bunch of old bootleggers and a bunch of just regular old guys that I'd seen a thousand times. And my daddy would go up there and play horseshoes. 
And so that story the guy told about the judge playing horseshoes with the guy he'd sentenced the week before had a particular resonance with me because I'd seen my daddy playing horseshoes there. I'd seen him up there with a guy he'd given probation the week before. And we went into place where they supposedly used to, quote, used to fight chickens and there were feathers in the damn fence. I'm like, well, it may not be as used to as they thought. That place was raided. I want to say in the last 15 or 20 years, it was raided and a bunch of people were arrested. As you've said before to me, your dad would hang out with, with anybody. He, he would at least associate with everybody and talk to them because that's just the kind of guy he was then, right? Yeah, he talked to pretty much anybody. Ballard George fixed our cars. I don't mind telling you that. Was that experience any different than what you heard about Ballard in the podcast? Ballard was a friendly guy. He was nice. And whenever I saw him, he was smiling. I actually saw him up at the courthouse one day right before he died. He was up there to vouch for somebody for a bond. That was the last time I saw him. But um, Ballard was always very pleasant and, and very friendly. I knew his history and it stuck with me a little bit, but it wasn't. He was always, like I said, nice and pleasant. We see him at Carolina Drive-In or at his shop or somewhere like that. I never saw him anywhere else. You know, we mentioned Lynn Porter earlier, and, you know, your dad had a story that was all about Lynn Porter. And for people who don't remember, you know, Lynn Porter was a pretty big gambling kingpin back, you know, in the uh, 70s and 80s around here. Your dad and Lynn Porter had sort of a unique relationship and a, and a story that popped up. And I'm, I'm curious if you wouldn't mind telling that one. I'll tell you. Daddy had gone to high school with, with Lynn's sister. He graduated with Lynn's sister. And he was always friendly with them. And Lynn bought a house and lived on a hill uh, right by where we lived near Grain Valley Country Club. And Lynn wanted to be a member of the country club. And Daddy wrote a letter and said he'd known Lynn Porter his whole life. And Lynn Porter always paid his debts. And he sent it into the country club. Of course, they played cards at the country club. And Daddy wasn't really worried about gambling or not gambling at the time. He just wrote it and put it in. And there was a big newspaper article that showed Daddy and a bunch of people I guess there was a picture of all of me dinner with Lynn somewhere. I don't remember exactly. But anyway, after that, somebody from the country club muggled the letter out of their file, I guess, and they put it in the Grateful News. It always kind of annoyed Daddy that anybody in the country club would worry about something like that. But when I asked him about it, he said, well, there wasn't anything in that letter that wasn't true. Lynn didn't play golf, but if he wanted to eat dinner at the country club, Daddy didn't see any reason he shouldn't. And, you know, that may kind of tell you, my daddy didn't think there was much difference in eating dinner with Lynn Porter and eating dinner with a, quote, captain of industry, unquote. And that may be the best way to describe Judge Frank Epps uh, based on, you know, all the research I've done and talking to his family and talking to his friends. Um, you know, what's interesting, there are a lot of stories like the horseshoe stories, and there's a lot of stories like the Lynn Porter stories uh, around Judge Epps. You know, he he led a very colorful life, and he hung out with some very colorful people. And, uh, you know, again, you know, there will be people who say that, you know, the judge was crooked, but, uh, you know, no one has ever shown any evidence of it publicly. And, I mean, to be honest with you, Judge Epps never got in trouble. Well, he never got in any serious trouble. Um, for those of you not familiar with South Carolina history, uh, you might be familiar with the Godfather of Souls history. That's James Brown. Back in the late 80s, 
James Brown got into some pretty serious legal trouble here in South Carolina. There were guns involved. There were drugs involved. There was a police chase that lasted through two counties and two states where he rode on his rims and fired his gun. Uh, he ended up in prison here. Uh, you can Google it. Um, or it, there's actually an episode of a podcast called Disgraceland. Um, it's called Papa's Got a Brand New Bag of Meth. Uh, in any case, the godfather of soul ended up behind bars here in South Carolina. And Judge Epps thought it wouldn't be a bad idea to have James Brown over to the courthouse to sign autographs for some people. So um, this is, uh, that ended up making national news. He was a colorful guy and, you know, he had all kinds of different things said about him, good and bad over the years. But I mean, the, the only time anyone ever really, you know, called him to the carpet for anything was something he did with James Brown once. Do you remember that story? <laughs> Do you remember that story? I was living in New York. I lived in a building that had a doorman. I had two roommates, but we, we had a kind of nice apartment. And I walked downstairs. The door looks at me and says, hey. I said, yeah. He says, you're daddy a judge. I said, what do you do? And <laughs> on, the second, on the second page of the New York Times, they described daddy as a folksy storyteller and lover of barbecue. And I read, I mean, I read the article and I called him. And I'm like, hey. He said, well. And he said, it was fine. He said, but we got him out of there. There's a lot more to that. I ain't going to talk about it too much. But I will say this. James Brown wasn't the only person that went to the courthouse to eat lunch from the penitentiary. The world was a different place back then. Um, and, you know, we used to go routinely in Pickens. We'd go with the sheriff and eat, eat dinner out at the stockade. So the idea of bringing somebody to the courthouse wasn't that big a deal to my father. You might be able to answer this for me. It's something that I never really could figure out since you mentioned the pick and stockade. That was where a lot of the guys like Bub and Luke Cannon and Frank Walker and everybody at one point or another, it seemed like they ended up out at the pick and stockade back in the 70s at least. Uh, how did how did that become a thing? Why was Pickens the place they ended up going, if you know? It was a work farm. You got to go outside. It wasn't a bad place to be. It's still not. They're closing it now with New Jail and Pickens, but it's always been a better place to be than, you know, SCDC, you, you can't underestimate how bad CCI was. I mean, you can't overestimate it. You know, and if you got out of CCI and you went different places, you're dealing with different people. If, if you were from the upstate and went to the pick and stockade, you were with people you kind of knew, or at least you understood how they thought. And again, you know, you, you hear Frank Epps talk about his father and you hear him, you know, he'll, he'll talk about him all day long and he will make absolutely no apologies for the man. Um, you know, I, I don't know anyone who listened to the podcast that wasn't at least a little surprised that, after, you know, a few decades after Judge Epps sentenced Charles Wakefield Jr. to death, that his own son went to work trying to get Wakefield out of prison. Um, so, you know, I, I talked to Frank Epps about this a lot. And uh, I wanted to hear it from him again after he heard the podcast. I didn't get to spend as much time in the podcast to talk about how you ended up actually getting involved in Charles Wakefield's case years and years later. Would you mind just sort of taking us through how that happened and what your experience was like with it? Eric Gottlieb called me. I guess he first called me trying to talk to daddy. And I talked to daddy. And my father died in 2002. And he was sick in 2001. I don't know that we realized it the whole of 2001, but he was already ill and, and he didn't feel good. I had conversations with Eric about like I'm having with you. I talk too much and I tell stories, but, but Eric wanted to talk to daddy. And I said, well, hell, I'll ask him or call the house. And daddy just, whether he, it was because he didn't feel good or otherwise, he, 
he didn't want to talk about the case and he knew Charles was trying to get out and he knew Bridges and some of them didn't want him to get out and and he just didn't want to talk about it. So he didn't talk to Eric, but I talked to Eric and like I told you, I had familiarity with the case and I'd always thought that Charles ought to get out and I'd seen how close he got that couple of times. I can assure you I did not attribute the reason he was into you. I attributed it to Bridges, but Bridges would have found out about it if he was out and in a lot of ways that'd have been worse for him to be out and be retroactively brought back. And I think that would have happened. Uh, I've thought about that while I was listening too. But anyway, Eric asked me, and, and there was a woman with an innocence project named Claudia, who's a great woman, who does a lot, as much good as anybody I've ever met. And um, they're still involved with Charles and, and some other things that may happen in the future. Oh, at least Claudia is. I, don't, I hadn't talked to Eric in years. And Eric asked me if I'd be willing to go to the parole hearings, and I said I would. I think they kind of thought having the judge's son there was helpful, and I was a lawyer, so I was comfortable going in my own right, and, and I went to the parole hearings. And I, I went to more than one, but I can't tell you how many, and I was there at the last parole hearing when they finally decided to grant parole. I think they did it a few days later, but I remember being there. What was that experience like just in the, in the in the final year and then it finally coming to be? I mean, how did that end up making you feel? It about made me cry. Um, I mean, of course, my daddy had passed away and, and it meant a lot to me because I told my dad I was going to try to help him get out. And um, daddy, again, he thought that was appropriate regardless of the facts of the case. I mean, it had been 30-some years. But I was always struck by the fact that they, they made it pretty clear to Charles in my view, and this is my opinion, it's not anything from the parole board because I've never talked to him. It always appeared to me that Charles had a better chance of getting out if he said he did it. And, and that's sort of the way the, the parole board works. Uh, it seems like most of the time like they, they force you to admit you did it, even if you didn't do it, before they give you parole. It seems to me anyway. And well, and he wouldn't do it. He, he, he remained adamant throughout. I did not do this. I cannot say I did this. And, you know, we just kept harping on the fact. I mean, the guy, 30-something years in the Department of Corrections without a write-up. You could start going alphabetically through the Department of Corrections, and I don't believe if you got to the L's, you'd have five that didn't have a write-up. Everybody gets written up for something. Having now listened to, you know, all of the podcast and gotten to the end, I'm I'm curious, you know, there were, there were probably parts that I didn't get to uh, or stories I didn't tell or something you, you know, might have thought I missed. Uh, you know, is there anything you think I could have gone longer on about? I don't know if you ever said anything about the phrase catch a rabbit. You know, Charles Wakefield said that at one point. I had no idea what he meant. So maybe you can explain it to me. Well, I mean, Charles had it in his head that it might have been something. It was an admonition to leave and get the hell gone fast. I know that. But I don't think there was anything about it that was directed at a particular race. And the reason for that is the only people I know that use that phrase on earth are me and my family. My father, when it was time to leave somewhere, he would say, we got to catch a rabbit. And that's how we knew to leave. And he said that his whole life, my sisters and brother and I say it. Um, hell, my mother even said it sometimes. And she wasn't inclined to talk that way. But I think it's an old kind of San Susie, Green, West Greenville phrase that has fallen out of favor. But it was certainly something that I'd heard my whole life. And still here because my family says it all the time. And 
when Epps talks about his family, you should know that, you know, he's got, he's, he's got other, he's got other siblings and the Epps name is still very well known in the community where this story takes place. And it, it's not as if, you know, he's up on a mountain somewhere. I mean, you'll, you'll see him anywhere up until this quarantine, you wouldn't have to look hard to find him at all. I mean, Frank Epps will go to the same kind of places he likes to eat, much like most people uh, who grew up around here have, you know, so many people who have lived there here their entire lives have the places that they want to go eat. And so I started talking to Frank about those people. And by those people, I mean, those people that he knew when he was growing up, those people that the community knew in terms of big names and big families and important families and what they represent to him. And, and, and I'll, I'll play a clip in a second where he talks about a lot of different people, but one of those families needs some context. Um, if you listen to the podcast, you might remember the Ledbetters. Uh, they're still a big family around here. Billy Ledbetter played a very you know, small part in the Wakefield story, but a part nonetheless. And there were other people uh, that were part of his family that were mentioned in the podcast from time to time who were probably as well-known or better. And there was Homer, Homer Jr., Joe Lee, you know, all the Ledbetters and more. And, you know, some of these stories are you know, funny as hell. Um, and one of those it comes from, you know, the man who tells the funniest stories around, and that's Leonard Brown Jr. And he's talking about going out on an alarm call at a high school here. I went to Carolina High School one day, and I saw Homer Jr. At the pulls up beside me right there on White Horse Road, and I tell him, you know, I'll, I'll go in the building run them out, and you try to find their car and put them walking, you know. So I go in the damn building and run some people out. They come out, and they had their car parked across the road behind the church. Well, I got to looking for Homer, and couldn't see him nowhere, so I finally got to ride around looking for him and pull behind the church. There Homer is sitting on the damn hood eating barbecue chicken with two fellas handcuffed. Homer, he, he didn't give a shit about no rules of where they was in the building. Not either. You know, I ain't just going to hold him up any damn way, you know. So I asked Homer where he got the damn chicken. He said, these guys had it. And I said, where'd y'all get it? He said, well, we stopped and bought it. We live over about easily, and we stopped here to eat the chicken, you know, and this fella come on and hold us up. He was always hungry. <laughs> Damn the sly you ever seen. He'd order a dozen eggs. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, I didn't see him in the building. So we don't know for sure he was in the building. Maybe they was coming around there eating chicken. Who knows? So I get him. I go over to the building, walk around, and talk to him a little bit. And one of them finally misses his dirty footprints on the floor where they walked around in there. And one of them said, Oh, hell, you might as well tell them they can see your footprints right here, but we couldn't have told what footprints was. <laughs> so they admitted it, you know, and, and then we was okay. <laughs> there is anything I enjoy more than listening to or editing a Leonard Brown story. And I literally laughed when I had the mic muted just now as I listened to that for probably the hundredth time ever. Um, some of the stories, however, that uh, he tells and that other people tell aren't as funny. And one of those stories came from the that infamous Bob Skelton telephone call uh, where he threatens Leonard Brown and then goes on to tell him that Billy Ledbetter is going to come after him and disfigure him. And then Skelton brings all the Ledbetters into it, Homer, Jolie, and everybody. Billy's the only one going to whip your ass, and he's going to whip your goddamn ass. Now, you can just count on that, and I can't keep it from you. You know he's hard-headed. 
Well, I don't know why he asked me so damn hard. Well, he's going to whip your goddamn ass. He's going to disfigure you. Now, I mean, you just bet on that. Now, you, you talk about shooting. If you shoot him, Homer will come kill you. If you kill Homer, Julia will come kill you. And vice versa. So, you know, the audio quality isn't all that great on that. But uh, nevertheless, we get to hear it because Leonard Brown recorded it way back in the day. And then his son, Leonard Brown Jr., who is a junior, uh, in fact, um, digitized them for us and we did the best to clean it up we could. But, you know, here, you know, there you heard Bob Skelton talking about how if, you know, Billy goes to beat up Leonard, then Leonard shoots him, then Homer comes and gets him and then Joe Lee comes and get him. And that's, you know, that's the story of how things were going back then. And, you know, I never know what's true and what's not when I listen to things like that. But at the same time, I do my best to to listen and try to piece the story together. And that all brings us back around to this longer part of the conversation. And this is like 10 minutes, but uh, this is the longer part of the conversation to where I talk to Frank Epps about the people and the families and in Greenville in the 1970s and how they existed then and how they still exist now. You said something to me at one point back uh, last year about how, you know, how much Greenville has changed since the 70s and how much, but how much, like if you go West Greenville or North into up around Traveler's Rest and areas like that, that there's still a lot of the same core people there. I wonder if you wouldn't mind just elaborating a little bit about that. You know, everybody says Greenville's different and cosmopolitan and, you know, we got Main Street with all the restaurants and everything and, and it's all there, but. You go into Tommy Sam House in the morning or at lunchtime. You go in Carolina Fine Foods at lunchtime, and I'm just picking places that I frequent. The hamburger shop up in Marietta, you go in those places, or there's the Hardee's in Marietta, and Travel Dress used to be too. You go in those places, and there's going to be a half a dozen or a dozen people that grew up within 15 square miles of there that have been here their whole lives that you don't see at downtown at one of the steakhouses or one of the new hotels or at the Chihuly statue behind the governor's school. And they're still there and they still remember everything and they still trade at Parker Road Drugs and they still remember Language Pharmacy and Tucker's and Roy Stansel's gas station. That was one of the ones that I thought about. And, and they're still there. They don't eat at Anchorage or what have you. And I went to Anchorage and the food was great. And I was amazed that I was sitting in West Greenville. Yeah, for those people who don't know, Anchorage is one of our new, uh, newer places in Greenville that is a uh, more of a, if you're a foodie or you're a person who enjoys some really, really good food, it's a, it's a hard place to get into, but a good place if you can. But it happens to be situated you know, less than a mile from the Looper House and the West Greenville where you know, everything happened. It's just right up the street from Anchorage, across from that little shopping center. That's you know exactly right. Yeah, I know exactly right. Well, that parking lot was Roy Stansel's gas station. And he played, I mean, he, at one point, he, you know, his name came up very briefly during the podcast, but uh, you probably know more, a lot more about him than I do. Well, I, I knew Roy his whole life. As Roy Stansel, you know, he had a gas station down there. And we would go to that gas station and go across the street to the Tasty Freeze and get ice cream. And it was the first gas station I was in, you know, where the proprietor sat there in a big recliner. And it was like a, a palace, you know. He had his gas station. He had a recliner. He had guys that worked for him and had a television. He had a, well, I'll tell you kind of a sad story. His, one of his mechanics there 
he tickled me. I can't tell you his name and I can't tell you why, but he just tickled me. He'd pay attention to me when I was in there and I'd just follow him around the gas station while my daddy was in there talking to Roy and he got stabbed in a beer joint. I think he was the first person I ever knew that got murdered. Wow. And I, I remember that. And, you know, I remember when daddy told me and I remember how sad I was. And I remember just thinking how crazy it was that somebody could get stabbed in a beer joint. It was also the beginning of my belief that you should never go into a place that doesn't have windows. <laughs> the place he got stabbed didn't have windows because daddy pointed it out to me later. That's another example of just somebody, you know, he was a mechanic and rough around the edges, but he's one of my favorite people that I ever met in my life. I just, I can't say enough about how much I hate that. Anyway, so Greenville's still around for the people that kind of remember what was going on. It's, it's funny, I guess so many of them are law enforcement officers or prosecutors or probation agents that we still talk about this and that all the time. And, and it's interesting to us, but for most people, they're always looking forward, which I guess is a better way to live. Well, maybe some people, some people say it is, and some people say it isn't. I had a, you know, I, I frankly enjoyed reporting stories that were from the past a, a lot more. I was going to tell you, you know, you mentioned all the various restaurants around town and I, you know, I guess every community has some like it, but Leonard Brown ate breakfast at the exact same place every morning, uh, nonstop. You I mean, you could find him there every day if you needed to until this quarantine started. Now he's in his eighties and he's having to try to figure out how to cook his own breakfast now. Oh Lord. So, you know, I, uh, it's, 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 it's changed everything for everybody right now. And I, you did mention to me at one point, uh, knowing the Ledbetters a little bit. Um, well, the Ledbetters, I knew, I knew Joe Lee real well. and I knew Joe Lee my whole life. He's, he was a good guy, but he brooked no nonsense. And when whoever it was said, if you killed Homer, you'd have to wait for Joe Lee to come kill you. Mr. Ledbetters was protective. It was as protective of his family as anybody I've ever known. When that came on, I actually called you and told you that might have been the truest thing in the whole podcast. But <laughs> I knew his family, and, and they are solid people who are very, very loyal in a way that people can be from around here. They were a family, you know, that was around forever, and they're still here. And, you know, you got to scratch the surface to find them because they're not out there, you know, swinging from the chandeliers. But they're just an example of a family that's part of this history as much as I am. And they're still here and still aware of everything, despite Greenville choosing to move into the prettier set of towns or something. I'll tell you, I mean, one of the more controversial things, at least locally, that I brought up, and I did not expect this to end up being one of the more controversial things, but was playing a lot of the the, the, the old sound and uh, archival tapes of Bub Skelton. And uh, you were one of the first people to tell me that, uh, you know, that, that he, you know, he had a side to him that everybody loved, and you were one of those people. Um, and, but, you know, so there were a ton of people that did not like the way I ended up portraying him, despite the fact it was 100% real interpretation, or at least one side of it. I was curious what you thought of the way Bob came across in the podcast and, um, you know, what you think. I, I, you know, it's, he's, I thought he came across fine. I, I stand by everything I said, you know, he, was nothing but nice to me, and everybody knew he'd done the things he'd done, and he still has, you know, family around here, too. I don't know what they thought of it. I probably should have asked them, but, but you know, he did, a, he did a lot of things for a lot of people, good and bad, and that's the nature of it. But that's one of the sad things I realized. Once I opened my mouth and started talking to you, I can't really worry too much about how you spin it. I know how it sits in my head, and I'm pretty comfortable with it. 
That's the way I like to, you know, that's the way I like to say it. I think the vast majority of people that I interview know that I try to do everything as honestly as I can, but not, no matter what, in the, in the process of telling a story, sometimes it just doesn't come away across exactly the way the person who said it wants it to sometimes. So, you know, I'm conscious of that fact all the time. I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, you know, so many damn stories from around this area. Uh, you know, as soon as I played the last episode of the podcast, everyone started asking, well, what are you going to do next? What are you going to do next? And I don't really have that answer yet. I was taking a break before the quarantine started, but now uh, I've got more time to think about it. I'm curious from your perspective, if there's anything uh, from the Greenville area that uh, past or present that you think is worth looking deeply into. There's a lot of stuff that's so far gone that it's all written history, but there's, you know, I think there's a project going on right now to map all the lynchings in the county. I think that's real interesting. The sheriff that supposedly paid a hitman to kill the guy that beat him in the election, to me, that's a fascinating story. That's uh, the, the, the the old Sam Willis story. Uh, no relation to me, but uh, Sam Willis was the sheriff that ended up getting killed there. Oh, what was his name? The guy around- Was it Rector or not? Directors, Carlos Rector. My grandfather represented him. No kidding. Yeah, after he had said some horrific things about my grandfather when he represented a fellow that was arrested for actually for the same thing as as Willie Earl for killing a cab driver in the like in nineteen nineteen or nineteen twenty. They arrested him on Friday night, kept him from getting lynched Saturday night and Sunday. Appointed my grandfather, I think Monday morning and. Had the trial Monday afternoon, sentence seemed to die Monday evening. And that fellow, the only reason I know about that is because that fellow walked up to my daddy when he was running for office in the 50s or late 40s and said, you don't know me, but your daddy saved my life. Wow. My grandfather appealed from the sentence of death, and it was the sentence of death was reversed, and eventually the guy got out of jail, and he walked up to my father and told him that. Daddy's never heard a thing about it. It's a reported case in the South Carolina reports, but that's an odd thing. I, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff that um, that I think is interesting. Well, if this uh, quarantine lasts any longer, maybe we'll end up uh, taking some more time to, to talk about it. But I guess in the meantime, um, I'll go ahead and just thank you for being willing to sit down and talk for a while. And, you know, hopefully this, you know, the next time we do this, we can do it sitting in your office or over lunch somewhere. Well, that would be, that would be really good. I, I enjoyed the podcast. I just, I wish it was, it's like so much in your life. You wish you had clear answers to everything and, and you don't. And I really hate that because it would be good if everybody knew exactly what could happen and we could put it all to rest. That's why I like watching crime shows on TV. They actually figure the stuff out. Yeah. That's the tough part about doing this podcast. I kept thinking of, you know, we'll either figure it out or come for a very good reason for why we can't figure it out. And I feel like we got closer to the latter than the former, but uh, still no, nothing really, you know, nothing There's a full resolution. No, no. All right. Well, thank you for doing this. And um, uh, I will uh, hopefully uh, talk to you again soon. So, you know, that was my conversation with Frank Epps and you know, if you know him or you don't, you know that, you know, an hour with Frank doesn't uh, doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. But at the same time, you, you can only talk for so long. And, you know, I think what he talks about there is probably uh, one of the more frustrating things about producing a podcast like this. And I think whether, you know, it's it's basic uncertainty, you know, uh, whether it's the uncertainty of the people you're interviewing or being honest, it's the uncertainty if the people who 
you are interviewing are being honest, but they're not being honest about the right things. Um, or if you just, uh, you're on the wrong track all along. And, you know, I never felt that I was on the wrong track, but you, you always have to be very careful and you always have to, you know, deal with that uncertainty along the way. And, you know, you know, for Frank Epps, you know, it's his dad. He doesn't have to be uncertain because it's his father and no one should have to be uncertain about their father. Uh, but at the same time, you know, as a journalist, I have to spend my time, you know, wondering, you know, do I have it right? And I believe I have it right. I've done everything I can to ensure that I have it right. Um, but you can only count on your sources as much as you can. And um, I, I, I count Frank Epps as not only a, a, a friend, but a great source just because we've spent so much time uh, both in the courtrooms and uh, talking to each other about it. And I I, I thank him for taking the time to talk to me because we're, we're, we're all right now living in a weird and uncertain time. And I, uh, I, I don't know that we've actually lived in a more uncertain time than we do right now, to be honest with you. Um, now, there was this point during the conversation that I had with Frank where uh, an old lawyer friend of his, and he's got many, but an old lawyer friend of his tried to walk into his office and Frank just cut the conversation with me off immediately and ordered this old boy to stay across the room. Um, and then after the old man was about to leave, Frank yelled at him and get a mask, um, which is perfect Frank Epps. So, uh, you know, Today, I told you I talked to Frank Epps, and he told me that he was not a Frank Epps Jr., and after we finished talking, he the, the last question, within seconds of us hanging up the phone, he asked me, why did you turn your hair that color? Uh, and that's because... Uh, on Easter of this year, uh, it's not too long ago when we were recording this episode, uh, my wife dyed my hair canary yellow. Uh, I'm 46 years old and I sort of look like a highlighter right now. But I did it for a good reason. And I, I, I honestly, I answered Frank honestly when I talked to him. I said I told him I did it to make my kid happy. And because Frank knows what it's like to be a father and knows what it's like to be a son, he immediately understood. So uh, that's why I wore a hat today during an online appearance with WSPA's Amy Wood. And uh, she and I had a good conversation about podcasting in the days of not being able to leave the house. And I'll tell you as a perfectionist, uh, you know, this was a hard episode for me right here simply because we had some live technical issues at the top. And, you know, my entire interview was over the phone and audio wise, it's sketchy. But at the same time, it's it's information and it's something to listen to and it's a way to connect with people that we haven't connected with in a while. So I've tried to give up my perfectionism during the quarantine. So uh, I had that good conversation with Amy and uh, until the situation improves and we can all go out and rejoin the world, uh, if everyone keeps listening, I will keep uh, trying to put some stuff together uh, here for Murder, Etc. Live just to keep myself occupied and telling stories. And, um, and if it does anything for you, uh, I hope it does. Um, if you did listen to our last live episode, Andy Etheridge and I told you the story of Mr. X, uh, the first murder of 1975. Uh, after we did that live episode, we released a video about the story that we put on Facebook, uh, as well as our website, which is murderetcetrapodcast.com. Um, you can find it there right now if you want. Um, and uh, right now I'm going to go looking for other stories. And I, I thank uh, all of you who listened live tonight uh, for being patient with me and making sure that uh, you came back uh, after our first uh, technical issues. And uh, thanks again to Frank Epps uh, for taking the time and being as honest as he was about his dad. And frankly, until next time, thanks to all of you for listening.